Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interactions. So welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name is Adam Farmer. I'm a gastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute uh, in London. And this month, it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Natasha Koloski, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at the Faculty of Health at the University of Newcastle in Australia. So Natasha, welcome to the podcast and congratulations to you and your co-authors on your paper entitled Identification of Early Environmental Risk Factors for Irritable Bowel Syndrome and functional dyspepsia. So Natasha, given the marked socioeconomic burden of both irritable bowel syndrome and functional dyspepsia, what do we know of their etiology? Yes, well, one functional gastrointestinal disorders are defined by a lack of a structural or biochemical defect. It's now apparent that there are subsets of patients with IBS and functional dyspepsia who have had a prior insult, such as a GI infection, and have what is termed as post-infectious IBS and functional dyspepsia. These post-infectious gut syndromes are thought to be due to a disturbance of the gut microbiome, leading to subsequent mucosal immune imbalance. There are also patients with measurable but subtle mucosal pathology seen in colonic and duodenal biopsies, for example, increased mast cells in IBS and increased eosinophils in FD, which are major players in the TH2 and 8 immune response, also seen in asthma. So our aim in this paper was to investigate whether early life factors and dysbiosis due to prior infection could contribute to promoting this switch from TH1 to TH2 and thus predispose to functional gut problems. So there has been some talk in the literature around the hygiene hypothesis. When was this first proposed and what other disorders has has it been linked to? Yes, the hygiene hypothesis was first proposed by Strassen in BMJ in 1989 and basically states that exposure to microbes in early life prevents later development of allergic diseases such as asthma and hay fever. Um, and, And therefore what so uh, leading on from the hygiene hypothesis, um, what's the disappearing microbiome hypothesis? Yes, so in contrast to the hygiene hypothesis, the disappearing microbiome hypothesis was put forward by Blasser in 2009 and it states that there is a reduction of the microbiota due to consequences of changes in environment, such as microbiota, loss of diversity, antibiotics, cesarean section, duration of breastfeeding, reduction in family size and bedroom sharing. And so what are the direct and proxy measures uh, are out there for for being able to measure the uh, hygiene hypothesis in an objective manner? So we looked at GI infection prior to the onset of functional GI symptoms by a self-report, as well as proxy measures for microbial exposure, such as bedroom sharing, birth order, presence of siblings, number of people living in the home and exposure to pets. We also assess prematurity, breastfeeding, and type of delivery as proxy measures particularly relevant to the disappearing microbiome theory. So what was your hypothesis as you you embarked on your study? So we aim to assess the hygiene hypothesis in IBS and functional dyspepsia by examining whether proxy measures for microbial exposure in early childhood are associated with the development of these disorders in adult life. And so can you give me some background to the uh, Nepean Health and Environmental Survey that you and Professor Talley have been, been working on? 
insulin and the PM Health and Environmental Survey consists of validated questions on gastrointestinal symptoms that enable a diagnosis of IBS and SD to be made according to Rome 3 criteria. A series of questions were also asked in relation to exposure to antibiotics prior to the onset of symptoms and infections, including the sudden onset of stomach and bowel problems, a previous bout of gastroenteritis in a year prior to the onset of stomach and bowel problems, and the overseas travel at the time of first onset of symptoms. We then had a whole section devoted to asking questions relating to birth and early childhood up to five years including type of delivery, egg delivery, prematurity, breastfeeding, sharing a bedroom, and pet exposure, which included exposure to herbivore, horses and birds, carnivores, dogs and cats, and omnivore guinea pig pets. Many of these questions were taken from other studies on this topic in asthma, for example, or were chosen to be events that people would be likely to remember, such as owning a pet or sharing a bedroom. In the survey, we also asked about age and gender, past medical illnesses, surgeries, height and weight, as well as validated questions on exercise, smoking and alcohol intake. And so how did you recruit the participants to your to your study and what were their sampling uh, characteristics? So this study was a cross-sectional retrospective epidemiological investigation of early childhood factors in people with IBS and functional dyspepsia. Um, we posted an opinion health and environment survey to about 1,700 people with a response rate of 53%. We had 767 participants complete an opinion health and environment survey. And these participants came from a random population sample from Penrith, Australia, which represents about 3.6% of the Sydney population and is representative of the Australian population as a whole. These people had participated in follow-up health surveys since 1997 with the latest survey conducted in 2011 and all participants had agreed to be recontacted for future research. We also compared responders and non-responders to the initial and follow-up surveys and overall there were no systematic biases there. Okay, that's uh, very helpful because one of the things, one of the problems that uh, that uh, is often accounted is uh, studying subjects and getting them to re-participate in uh, in surveys so i think you've done a, an amazing job uh, recruiting so many so many subjects to your study so what was the prevalence of of ibs uh, functional dyspepsia and their post-infective uh, counterparts respectively yes um, so we found 17% of the sample met rome 3 criteria for ibs and 12% met rome 3 criteria for functional dyspepsia over the 12-year period, of all individuals meeting criteria for IBS, 20% had post-infectious IBS as they reported an incident of gastroenteritis in the past year, and in those with functional dyspepsia, only 6% fulfilled the criterion for post-infectious FD. So, that, well, considering these uh, disorders, I think we'd uh, all agree that they have a marked heterogeneity. Um, what potential yeah. confounders did you evaluate? So we explored several potential confounders in this study, including ethnic origin as well as ethnicity of the mother and father, but these were too concentrated in the Australian and UK-born categories to be considered confounders. Uh, we also found that smoking, alcohol and exercise, except for frequency of walking, were also similar between IBS and controls and FD and controls. Um, so in the end, only age, gender and frequency of walking were considered confounders in our analysis. And then, therefore, what, what were the key results uh, from your study? 
So we found uh, intriguing potential support for the disappearing microbiome theory in IBS and functional dyspepsia as determined by our proxy measures for microbial exposure, observing our early hygiene factors up to the age of five years, such as um, shorter duration of breastfeeding, sharing a bedroom and pet exposure, especially to herbivore pets, such as a horse or a bird, were associated with IBS in adulthood and herbivore pet exposure being also associated with functional dyspepsia. However, these findings do need to be confirmed. And so that, therefore, in considering the wider context of the field, how would you interpret uh, these novel findings? So our findings suggest that changing lifestyle factors could be changing the microbiome with a reduction in diversity of the microbiome, resulting in a predisposition to functional gastrointestinal disorders. And do you, do you think this is uh, uh, obviously an environmental factor, but do you think there's a genetic component at play here as well? Yes, we do We do think that as well. So, yeah, um, genetic studies are important in this area. And, and what do you think the limitations of your study were? So this was an exploratory study and our results do need to be confirmed in future studies. As a, as a result, we didn't have enough power to completely sort out the role of early environment factors in IBS and functional dyspepsia subgroups. And obviously, recall and selection bias may have been present in this study, as is the case with these types of studies. Um, yes, you're, um, that's an interesting point regarding uh, recall bias, and I think one that's well made. So where do you think the knowledge gaps really lie in the field as, as we stand today, and, and what do you think are the key steps in, in resolving these? So while this unique study has shown environmental factors may be important in these disorders, there's still plenty of work to do. We do need to find out how do microbes Microbial factors relate to other factors that we know precipitate functional gastrointestinal disorders such as stress and current infections. And as you mentioned before, genetics is also another area of importance. For example, why do only some people get a functional gastrointestinal disorder following GI infection? Is it due to a genetic background? There are a myriad of factors in play and we need to tease out the contributions of each to developing functional disease. And we are moving towards a change in our view of these disorders is not functional per se as we are getting closer to finding causes for these disorders. So Natasha, thank you for that. And, and with that, I'd like to wrap up this month's podcast and thank uh, both you and your co-authors for an excellent paper and as well as uh, assisting in this month's uh, uh, podcast and also our listeners for tuning in. And I, I look forward to uh, to welcoming our listeners on another instalment of the podcast uh, next month. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to next month's edition.